Thanks again, praise team, for leading us in worship. What a powerful name it is. Amen? Amen. All right, let's uh, turn to Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to see uh, some of the power of that name today. As, uh, we'll be studying verses 7 through 12 of, of Revelation chapter 12. As we're looking at the 11th hour, the final days. In, uh, in, in a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, we began to see this great sign. You might remember this great sign in the sky that John had had the uh, privilege to see, and he saw this great sign, and it gave a behind-the-scenes look of really things that have been happening since before biblical history, things that were happening in heaven all the way throughout, uh, uh, throughout history. And we saw that there's really been this cosmic duel going on throughout human history between God and his arch-nemesis, Satan, who was named Lucifer in the beginning. And in the vision, we had three main characters. We had the woman in the vision that he saw in the sky, and the woman represented Israel. Then we had a dragon. Um, uh, it didn't quite look like this dragon. It was, it was a seven-headed dragon, but we have this dragon, and that was Satan himself. Right. And we also found that the woman was with child, and who was that child? Oh, that's horrible. Who was that child? Jesus Christ, exactly, right? So, so this baby, Jesus, is, is, uh, is the child there. And the dragon, was his plan was to kill the bloodline of the Christ before he could save the world. And we saw that all throughout human history, how his, that Satan's attempts were to stop Jesus from being born. And even when he was born, the, the idea was to, to get him killed before he could save the world. And, and so we see this all the way from Cain. We see this in, in, through Moses, through David, Joash, etc. Right on through the life of Jesus when Herod, working on behalf of Satan, was trying to kill Jesus. The cool thing is, he failed. Right? Jesus was born. Right? And we celebrate that every Christmas. Jesus was born. His parents were warned that Satan was uh, of Satan's plan. And they escaped uh, to Egypt. And, uh, and Jesus did die on the cross. He did rise from the grave. And he did pay for all of sin. And isn't that awesome? Right. Now, Satan, at this point, understands he just lost this cosmic duel. Right? He's lost. He tried all these attempts to stop Jesus. And he failed in every single one. And now, Jesus Christ dies on the cross he raised, he's risen from the grave, and he knows he's lost. So do you think that Satan would concede, and then uh, that'd be the end of it? Not at all. Satan is not about to go down lightly, and he wants, in fact, he's, he knows he's lost, but he is not going down without a fight. In fact, this sparks on a full-out war. Let's look at verse 7 of, of chapter 12. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now, so this, there's this war. You've got on one side, you've got Michael, who is the name, Michael, it literally means who is like God. He's considered the mighty angel, the mighty archangel. He's the leader of the armies. You have Michael versus the dragon and his demons. And so you've got this battle taking place in heaven. I do want to throw in a little point of clarification here. I think it's important to understand this. Um, this is not talking about the original fall of Satan back when Lucifer first rebelled. This, this is not that. Right? 
This is a, something completely different. This battle is completely different. In fact, uh, in, if you look in the context, just go a couple of verses earlier, and when you saw the, the vision of the woman and the child and the dragon, what did it say about the woman? She bore a male child. Now, not to get too technical, but what tense is bore? Is that present tense, past tense, or future? That's past tense, right? So we know that what is happening in verse 7 took place after this. So this is not talking about the fall of Satan and pre-Genesis. This is not talking about that. This is a battle that happens sometime after Jesus was born. And so it's future for us. John's getting a glimpse of seeing this. Uh, but, but now we've got this war going on between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his demons. And let's see how it goes. Verse 8. But they, talking about the dragon and the demons, they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So in the end, in this battle, guess who loses? The same one who has been winning here on earth for a long, long time. And the one that, that, that any, from a human perspective, you, you'd have to say, boy, Satan's got more control of this earth. Does it doesn't seem that way. And yet what we find in the end is when there's a battle that takes place in heaven, Satan loses that battle. He and his demons lose. Now this is still future for us. Right? So we're still living where he's the prince of the powers of the air, the New Testament refers to him. So he's still very active right now. But this is what we have to look forward to, a day when he loses to Michael and his angels. And it's interesting, too, if you look at this verse, we find that it is at this point that Satan lost access to heaven. That's what it says. It, and uh, Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. I think it's important for us to understand something here. This t teaches us that at present... Satan is allowed a presence in the throne room of God, and there he does something very interesting. In fact, we can read about this in Job 1. Keep a finger here in Revelation 12, but in Job 1, what do we find? We find Satan as well. I'm going to switch things because it's not working. There we go. Job 1. We read this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. By the, word, by the way, in the Old Testament, sons of God oftentimes refers to angels. So this is uh, in, in heaven, surrounded by angels, and who's with them? Satan. Verse, verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. And from walking back and forth on it. So here we have this idea that Satan has already been to the earth. People are already here. This is not talking about the fall of Satan. This is talking about after people have been here. He comes to the earth. He goes to and fro. He's among us. And then he goes up to heaven where he does something very interesting. Verse 8 we see, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, and one who fears God and shuns evil. So God starts to brag about, about some of his followers. He brags about Job. By the way, wouldn't it be awesome to know that God bragged on you? Think about that. That would be cool. And that's, that's more than anything I want in life. I want at the end of my life for God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That would, that would be the, the, the acme of everything I could work for. What does Satan do from this point on? 
he starts accusing. He starts accusing. Well, I don't know about this. And, I, 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 I'm, and he goes around. And, and when you stop and think about that, that Satan has access to the throne room of God where he, where he accuses us. Imagine him saying, hey, um, God, look, there's Dave Grace. And he's not obeying me right now. So why don't you punish him you know, like, you, like you're punishing me? Right? I mean, he doesn't deserve salvation. And you know what? In that, he would be right. I don't deserve salvation. Anyone here deserve salvation? And so Satan is looking at your lives. How would you like it if the most embarrassing thing, the most sinful thing you did this week was put up on these screens right here? Say, hey, look what so-and-so did. I wouldn't want that. Would anyone else volunteer for that? No. And so Satan is up there in heaven and he's saying, here's what this person did. Here's what that person did. Here's what that person did. And he's accusing us of, of, of all the things that we're doing wrong and why we don't deserve salvation. But at, at this point in Revelation, all of that ends right here. All of that, he loses access to heaven on that day. Isn't that going to be awesome? He loses access. He no longer has a voice there. And, uh, and not only that, we see some other... Some, other results from this as well. Look at verse 9. We read this. So the, the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. I don't know about you, but that deserves a hallelujah right there. <laughs> to see that day when finally Satan is totally cast out of heaven. In fact, three times you find the word cast. It's called cast out once, and then was cast, were cast. Three times, I think there's an emphasis in this verse, don't you? That, that Satan is finally cast out. The word means to be thrown. Uh, I think if we were to, to uh, look at just the strength of that word, maybe the word we would use in English today would be kicked, right? He was kicked out of heaven. And so now it's, he, is, he is banished from heaven. Three times in the, in the same verse, it talks about either Satan or his angels being cast out. What I think is also interesting about this verse is, is that it reveals who the dragon is in some very descriptive manners. There's, there, there are multiple titles for who the dragon is. Uh, two of them right here are in one description as well. The first one is he's called the devil. He's, he's called the devil. By the way, in English, we use the word devil for just about anything. Like, and and, and, uh, and it could be anything from a hockey team in Jersey to whatever, I mean, or, or, or a vacuum to clean up the floor. But the word devil itself is actually a strong word, and, and, and the word devil means accuser. Accuser. It's a legal terminology, and it means that in a court case, if you have a court case, you have someone who's the plaintiff, someone who's pressing charges, right? You have the accuser, the one who's accusing the defendants, which means, by the way, who are the defendants? We are. And so there's this cosmic court case of sorts going on and the devil is our accuser. He's the one that's accusing us. And by the way, he is not on our side because of the other title we find is Satan. The word for Satan is actually also a term used quite a, quite a few times in legal terms to mean the plaintiff. And, uh, and the idea is that he is the adversary. In other words, he is not on your side. He's not there. And so he is accusing you, and he is not doing so because he's on your side. He is doing so 
because he is against you. And then the, the last thing, the description that it gives us Satan here is this. It says that he deceives the whole world. Let that sink in for a moment. Have you ever heard the, the saying that you can fool some of the people some of the time, and you can, or some of the people all the time, and all the people some of the time? And of course, you can never fool them ever is how it finishes, right? But, but when, you, when you look at that, here we have Satan is fooling pretty much the entire world all the time. He's, he is deceiving the whole world. Now, we do hear about remnants of people who don't, who don't fall for it, but, uh, but it, it's enough of a deception, uh, and it's the, the breadth of this deception is so, so widespread that the Bible says, basically, it's the whole world. The whole world is deceived. Think about that. Think about that. Deceived by the whole, or the whole world. That means the world can actually be categorized into two groups. That's it. But I used to say there's only two kinds of people. People who put everyone into two groups and those who don't. Right? But in reality, this is one of those things where you can say you can put everyone into two groups. Uh, there are those who are deceived by Satan and then there are those who are persecuted for not being deceived by Satan. That's it. Those are the only two groups that there are. And, and so he deceives He's a liar. And you know, he's been lying since the beginning. He's been lying since Genesis 3. When he said, oh, you can take the forbidden fruit. You don't have to listen to God. In fact, you can be like God. If you just disobey him. Don't take, don't take orders from him. You can give your own orders. He's been saying that since from Genesis 3. And he's still saying it today. And you know what? Most of the world has fallen for it. Most of the world has fallen for it. Satan's got these lies too in context here that we can even see just from the, the titles of, of Satan. Uh, we see, see two of them. One is the lie that I'm on your side. He is not on your side. He is the adversary. In fact, just the other day I was listening to NPR and they were actually promoting a church of Satan saying, oh, they're just the most misunderstood group. They were talking about how, how they, they, they don't really worship Satan. All they do is just tell you that you can worship yourself. Like, what's wrong with that? There's a problem with that. Because Satan doesn't need you to worship him. If you're worshiping yourself, he's got you right where he wants you. There are a lot of Satanists in the world who have no idea they're Satanists. They think they're just living out their life in the way they want to. Well, if, you're if, you have, if you live out life with disregard for God and you're calling your own shots in life, guess what that is? That's Satanism. Because he's deceived you into that belief. He's deceived the whole world into that belief. He is not on your side. And he simply wants to drag as many people with him as possible because he knows he's already lost the battle. The, the second lie that we see here is, is the idea that you can glorify yourself you know, you can glorify yourself. Remember what did, did Satan say at the beginning when he started this whole rebellion? I will be like the Most High. I can ascend to the heights. I don't need God to take me there. I can do that myself. I can be like God. You can glorify yourself. And when you think about it, if we're going to say that he's de deceived everyone in the world, that means every religion, every worldview out there, minus the truth, is a deception. I mean, we live in a world where we say there's so many religions, it's kind of pompous to say that you found the right one. Have you heard that before? Well, here's the thing. All of the religions are kind of the same. 
All, every worldview on the planet, it's the same thing. And it all boils back to you can glorify yourself. You either work through a series of religious practices and become somehow godlike, or uh, you, could, you could ignore God altogether. You could be an atheist. A lot of times we call this humanism. And the idea is that you're already godlike. You're the top of the chain. So, uh, so just be the master of your own destiny. And the idea it all goes back to the same thing. You can glorify yourself. The word for that is pride. But I would challenge you to find any religion, any worldview out there, aside from the truth of Christianity, and, and, and if you look at its root, it's not about pride. You're not going to find it. But then there's one religion that's about humility. One religion where you cannot accept Jesus Christ without admitting you don't deserve heaven. And there's nothing you can do for it. You have to receive it as a gift. And that's humbling, is it not? Is there a difference? I look in the world and pride has become the source of every evil thing I see in the world. And humility has been the antithesis to that. I'll tell you what, I'm going with humility, not with pride. And I can't even say that with pride, because I only can say that because of Jesus Christ. Amen? Satan has lied and he's, he's made these lies and I would say this too. Satan uses these lies to drag as many people to hell as he can. He knows he's lost. And he wants to take as many as he can. And you know what? It works with most of the people on the planet. But in the end, he'll lose that battle. And he'll be cast to the earth. The place where he rules. The place where people have fallen for his lies. But when he's cast to the, to the earth... John gets a glimpse of what takes place in heaven. Look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. When Satan is cast out of heaven, all of a sudden there's a celebration that breaks out in heaven, and they're saying, wow, now salvation has been realized. Salvation has been provided for, it has been bought when Jesus Christ died on the cross and when he rose from the grave. He has bought it. This is that point in time when it's, when it's realized, at least in heaven. We'll talk about when salvation is realized on earth too. But it'll be realized in the sense of that it will be made real in heaven at this point. Salvation has become available in heaven because the accuser has been kicked out of heaven. And then we come to verse 11, which I would consider the key verse to this passage right here. There's a, there's a lot in verse 11. We read this. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Think about that for a moment. Uh, well, first of all, who's the they of this verse, right? The, the they in the context, these are believers of, of, of whom Satan has been accusing. We're talking about you and me, if we've ever accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is talking about you. And I don't know about you, but this is one of the most encouraging verses in Scripture, that when it's all said and done, no matter what we go through on earth, no matter what persecution we face, even if we're killed for it, we, what do we have to look for? We have a, a, a day to look forward to where, guess what? We overcome. 
We're the overcomers. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me courage to accept it when I'm persecuted by someone else. Doesn't it to you? When you realize there's going to come a day when we will overcome. And, and then what's really cool about this verse is it tells us exactly how we overcome. And, and that's why I'd like to spend the, the next uh, portion of the message here. And I call this the path to victory because it's the path on how we overcome. It tells us exactly right here in this verse. And they overcome or overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Three things here in this, in this path to victory. Let's, uh, let's take, um, um, take a look at those. Number one, to the path to victory. Number one, we, we have the blood of the lamb. We have overcome. How? By the blood of the lamb. Notice what it does not say. It does not say we have overcome by being really, really good. Right? Is that what you read? It's not what I read. In fact, that's what every false religion's about. You redefine good, and then everyone tries to be really good somehow by, that, by some other man-made definition of good. That's what every religion on the planet is about. But this does not say we've overcome by becoming really good. It, notice it does not say we've overcome by mastering our own destiny. and That's humanism. We have overcome by trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. See, in the Old Testament, they predicted that Jesus was going to die on the cross by having sacrifices of a lamb. And that lamb represented, it had to be a spotless lamb, representing that, that the sacrifice had to be sinless. And they, they, they had the sacrifice that they would do over and over again. And every time they did it, this was a picture of what was about to take place. Then Jesus is born. You might remember John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he dies on the cross. A brutal death. He, he, he is resurrected from, from the grave. And that was the final fulfillment of what all that stuff in the Old Testament was pointing to. And how do we overcome? It cannot be in our own strength. It cannot be in our own actions. It has to be in the trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross. Period. Anything else, we fall right back into the whole this, all of those deceptions of Satan and we start earning ourselves there. When you think you can earn your salvation, pride is now a factor again. And God says, I will have none of it. Because it ruins the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not going to allow it in heaven again. So he created a way of salvation that required an understanding that it is in the blood of the Lamb. In fact, if I were to use one word, one theological term for this, we call it salvation. We call it salvation. The idea that we're saved through the blood of the Lamb. I'll tell you what, if you want to overcome on that day, if you want to make sure that when all, things are, when all things are settled in heaven one day, if you want to make sure you're there on that day, first thing you got to do is make sure that you understand this idea of salvation. And if you, have, if you do not understand it, if you don't know what it means to be saved, if you don't know what it means to trust in, this, in the blood of the Lamb, then I'm going to give you an opportunity today. Don't walk out of here today without knowing that. The second thing that we read in the verse, it says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the word of their testimony. Now this, in the context of Revelation, makes, uh, makes a little bit more sense. Do you remember why John wrote this book from a prison cell? He was exiled to this prison for what? 
In fact, we'll read about it in, in chapter 1, verse 9. says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos. Why? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other words, because he believed in this book and because he lived it out in his life, in his testimony, they put him in prison for it. They persecuted him. In fact, when we get a few chapters further into Revelation chapter 6, this is what we read. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Why were they martyred? Why were they killed? Uh, what, happened, what happened to them? It tells us right here. For the word of God. And what else? And for the testimony which they held. In other words, they believed in this book. And they had a testimony that showed that they adhered to the principles therein. And they were martyrs for that. And, and uh, so when we come now to Revelation chapter 12... It makes more sense. What's, what's the, the idea here is that true followers of Christ will demonstrate a lifestyle change. They will have a testimony of adherence to the Word of God. They'll have a testimony of adherence to the Word of God. So if you claim then to be a believer, you claim that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you don't have a reputation of conformity to God's word, then what does this mean? It means you've been deceived. In fact, John also wrote in a different one of his books, we read this, now by this we know that we, that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Can't, can't get any more clear than that, can you? And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then there's going to be a testimony that follows that. And you're going to be uh, adhering to God's word. And there's going to be a testimony. That doesn't mean we'll be perfect. But we'll even follow God's word when we mess up. And God's word tells us how to repent. And we'll repent. And, and it's the word of the testimony. If I were to give, put one word to, to define that concept, I would use the word sanctification. It's the process by which we become more and more like Jesus Christ by adhering to his word and obeying his commands. The path to victory has to begin with salvation. And what happens in the end? It's just they, they, they will overcome. How? Through salvation and through the word of our testimony. Also, we read, that's also by not loving our lives to the death. What does that mean? Um, that's a typical expression in Greek. We don't use it too much in, in English, uh, that, that grammatical construct there. But the idea is there that they would consent to die rather than prove themselves unfaithful to Jesus Christ. Not loving our lives to the death. In other words, rather than choosing to love my own life, I would choose death before choosing to love my own life because I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. That's, that's strong, isn't it? But when Satan is cast down to the earth, he's going to persecute and kill believers. And we're going to read more about this later on in the chapter. But, but even then, true followers of Jesus Christ would consent, and they will consent, to die 
rather than to forsake the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, this is happening in certain places of the world already. It's going to happen on a, on a global scale at this point in history, when, when Satan is loosed on the earth. But right now, we see Satan has a power in the world, and we see this happening all over the world. In fact, right now, um, statistically speaking, Christians are the most persecuted uh, demographic on the planet. There are more people being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ than anything else. And meant to imagine that's going to happen at some point here as well. If I were to put one word to describe all this as well, I would use the word sacrifice. There comes a point where we say, I'm going to sacrifice this earthly life. I'm going to sacrifice the life that I have in order to follow Jesus Christ because I believe that he's going to give me a heavenly life afterwards. By the way, that's a good trade, isn't it? That's a really good trade when you think about it. This is what Jesus was talking about. When he said in Matthew 16, um, um, uh, when, he, when he said that, they would sac- that you can sacrifice earth in order to gain heaven. Look at verse 24 of Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's he saying? If your desire is to save this life right here, the one that you have, you'll have, you'll have that one, but you're going to lose it eventually. By the way, no one has ever found a way to cure death outside of Jesus Christ. So eventually, what Jesus said is going to come true. Eventually you lose it. And so if you put all your eggs in the, that basket, then that, that's a problem. That might be harder for even some, of the, some young folks to understand because you've never been old or you've never started getting old. But if you look around the room, there are people who, or at least at this point, and I'm, I'm one of them, who have started, started the decline, right? Am I, am I the only one here? Is everyone, everyone in tip-top shape? I don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm the only one here because... I would see a lot more people running the, 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 the mud run right here if, if everyone was in tip-top shape. But we're not. We start to decline. It's, that's the nature of things. That's where we're headed, right? And, and that's, that's, the, that's the direction of all people. And whether you're great or small, whether you're, you could be Beethoven, who was, spent his whole life composing, but he's been decomposing ever since. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's, it's where we go. And Jesus said, if you seek, to, if you seek to, to save this life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, you sacrifice the life that you've been given right now, and you sacrifice it for Christ, or you'll find life. In fact, Jesus came that you have life, and that you have it more abundantly. You can have eternal life. Then he goes into verse 26 where he says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. That's the day that I'm looking forward to. Jim Elliott, famous missionary uh, to the Alpha Indians, he said this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. They found those words after he was martyred by the Alka Indians in his diary. And you know what? He sacrificed his life for something that he can't lose. 
Oh, he's, he lost his life. That was a good shade. That was a good sacrifice. See, for those who do overcome, there's something to be celebrated. Look at verse 12 of Revelation 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Something to be celebrated. By the way, what about those who put all their stock in the earth and in their earthly life? Well, look at the rest of the verse. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And that day, Satan has already lost the battle. He's cast to the earth and let loose. And he's been convincing the world that he's on their side for all these years. And they're going to see the truth. And he's going to be ticked because he knows he only has a little bit of time left. And he wants to do whatever he can to hurt God. God loves people, so he's going to attack people. God loves his Christians, his believers, he's going to attack them. Believers. See, there's only two options when you think about it. There's, you can either be the overcomer, setting your affections on heavenly things, or you can be an earth dweller, as the book of Revelations calls us many times, calls the world many times, earth dwellers, people who focus solely on the earth. And what we find is the overcomers are they're gonna they're the ones who sacrifice the earth in order to gain heaven. Where the earth dwellers, they actually sacrifice heaven in order to gain earth. Now how do you apply? How do you apply all of this? How do you take this? This is heavy stuff, isn't it? How do you take this and, and figure out how to apply it? I think Paul summed up an ap- a great application to this in Philippians 3. I'm just going to read through it. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. The earth dwellers. I love the way that it's very descriptive when he says, whose God is their belly. In other words, whatever your appetite says, you go for that. Isn't that the philosophy of everyone around us? Their God is their belly. They set their mind on earthly things. That's what they're looking for. They want what they can get on earth. But for us, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't get there. For, yeah, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, my citizenship is in a different place. I'm a traveler here. What is a traveler? Someone who's in a place temporarily. Now, even though I've never been anywhere else, this is the only planet I've ever been on. I'm a traveler here. Why? Because I'm only here for a short period of time. A million years from now, I'm going to look at this earthly life and say, that was just a blip of my existence. And so right now, what do we do? We eagerly await Jesus Christ. Verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I'm not putting my trust in this body. I'm putting my trust in the glorious body, the one that is conformed to the, to the body of Jesus Christ. 
That's where I, that's what I'm looking forward to. So when I think through the applications, I think that there are applications for all three of those of those steps in the path to to overcoming the path to victory. When, when it comes to salvation, let me ask you just a couple of questions that I want you to, to think through for introspection. For salvation, simple question: Are you saved? If you want to be an overcomer in that day, you have to be saved now. Scripture said it is appointed on the man once to die. After this, the judgment. You have to make that decision right here, right now. Let me ask you, where's your home? Where do you feel at home? Do you feel at home on earth? If so, chances are you need to think this question through. Is this where you're putting Are you an earth dweller? I'm not just talking about a pilgrim making your way through the earth, but are you an earth dweller where you're putting all of your hope in, in, into the, to what you have in this world? Or are you saved? Have you put your trust in what you can do? Or have you put your trust in the blood of the Lamb? Regarding sanctification, I want to ask you a, a question as well. Does your testimony reflect an obedience to God's word? Say, well, Pastor Dave, I remember a time when I said a prayer, and I was maybe three years old, and I said a prayer, um, but does my testimony reflect an obedience to God's word? Well, no, not really. Then what does that mean? What does that mean? It means maybe you've been deceived. Guess what? Satan's good at it. We've all been deceived at one point or another. And maybe that's you being deceived right now to say, oh, I think I'm saved. But you're not. Because overcomers are going to have the word of their testimony. Their testimony is going to reflect the word. Third question, if given the choice, would you sacrifice your earthly life for Christ? When you think about that day when, when the Christians are persecuted and, and God says those, those who are true believers, they're going to not love their lives, even to the death. Would that be you? If someone were to come in today and say, we're going to let you free only if you renounce Christ. But if you don't, we're going to take your life right here, right now. Would you say, I sacrificed my life. Why? Because I, I would rather not love myself, even if that means death. When you get there, you're an overcomer. You're an overcomer. If you're not there, you need to ask yourself, have I been deceived? Go back to question one. I'll tell you what, if any of those things have caused you to rethink question number one, I want to give you a chance to respond. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to give you a chance to respond. And then, and then afterwards, I'm going to give everyone a chance to respond via singing it in, in a different form. But I'm going to give those who would say at first right now, Pastor Dave, I'm not 100% sure that I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm not 100% sure that I put my trust in the Lamb. And in a moment, when we, when, we, when we sing, I'm just going to ask you to come forward or you can go to the back where we'll have a, a, a man or woman show you from God's Word how you can know for sure that you put your trust in the Lamb. And you can know for sure that when that day comes, when the dust clears, you'll still be standing because of what Jesus Christ did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, I know.